Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 11, 2015, and this is a special edition of Econ Talk, recorded before a live audience at Ball State University. I'd say it's a very large live audience. Can I hear from you guys? Let's hear it. <laughs> and our special guests are Vernon Smith and James Otteson. Vernon Smith is professor of economics at Chapman University and was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. In 2002, Vernon, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. And Jim Otteson is the executive director of the BB&T Center for the Study of Capitalism and professor at Wake Forest University. Jim, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So our topic for today is Adam Smith. We're going to talk about his view of human nature, his impact on economics and philosophy, and his significance for our lives today and for the study of economics. Somehow we're going to manage to do that in about an hour. Jim, I'm going to start with you. Give us a short biography of Adam Smith. A short biography of Adam Smith. Um, so Adam Smith was um, probably, I think I would classify him as the founder of sociology as a discipline, or the study of um, human social institutions as a discipline. He's born in 1723 in a little town called Kirkcaldy in Scotland, which is just over the Firth of Forth from Edinburgh, if you know the, um, the layout of uh, Scotland. Um, he studied at the University of Edinburgh and also uh, studied at Oxford. He was not, by the way, too happy with his studies at, the, at Oxford. He thought that the professors at Oxford, because they, were, they had tenure and they had an endowment, uh, uh, the president of Ball State might pay attention to this, he thought that that made them all lazy and they didn't actually do their job. Um, uh, but he did get a chance there at Oxford to, uh, we, to read very widely and deeply in French, German, Latin, Greek. He was something of an autodidact. Came back to Scotland, uh, there was befriended by uh, one of the other great luminaries of this period, David Hume. Some of you will have heard of the great philosopher David Hume. Um, his first book, um, which really gave him the name both um, in the British Isles and on the continent, was uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Came out in 1759. Um, his second book, for which he's now much more famous, is uh, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, which came out in 1776. That was an auspicious year, of course. Um, some of you may remember that's the year in which David Hume died. Is that what you were thinking? That <laughs> uh, is the year David Hume died, also the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, Smith himself um, never married. He, um, when he, after he returned to Edinburgh, um, he apparently, we know this from one of his students who talked about it later, that he fell in love with a woman, but before he decided to ask her to marry him, um, his mother fell ill, and so he thought it was his, uh, his duty as a son to move into the home with her and take care of her. She lived for another 30 years. Um, so he lived with his mother all the way until she passed away, which is just a few years before he died. He died finally in uh, 1790. Uh, at the time, he was uh, the, the last two positions that he had, he was the rector of the University of Glasgow, um, which was largely an honorary position. Um, and interestingly, maybe for our purposes for the discussion also, his, uh, his final paid job was as a customs collector in Scotland, which is something in somewhat interesting for someone considered to be a f the founder of free market economics. 
<laughs> Thanks, Jim. I, I want to start in our discussion of Smith's ideas uh, with his view on human nature, which uh, is, we could, of course, spend a few hours on that alone. Uh, but, Vernon, I'd like you to start with your view of how Smith saw human beings. And let me plug into what Jim just said about uh, the biography of Adam Smith. Uh, Isaac Newton died, I think it was five years after Adam Smith was born. And, of course, Isaac Newton had a tremendous influence on the Scottish philosophers and that, that period. And I think this, the, the central thing to keep in mind in understanding Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments is that he was very aware of the power of explaining observations in terms of sort of hidden rules. Uh, rules and order that we're not aware of, but nevertheless have great power in explaining observations. And in a sense, what Adam Smith did was to apply those ideas to trying to understand what he saw as the most obvious characteristic of human beings, and that is our sociability. On the other hand, he was no, under no misperception that the laws undergirding or, or helping uh, in, involved in human interactions were as precise and determinate as those articulated by Adam Smith. In fact, he, 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 he actually says that. <laughs> A little, and I would also, in adding to what Jim said, uh, one of his first written works was A History of Astronomy. It was not published until after his death. Uh, but there's a great deal, it was very clear that Adam Smith had a thorough understanding of, of the Newtonian uh, system. Cool. So back to human nature. So, human <laughs> nature. What are, and so, how can we account for this sociability? And the theory of moral sentiments basically addresses that, that question. It's... And, and what it shows, I think, is the, the deep capacity of Adam Smith to think about what might underpin, you see, uh, our, our, our social nature. And there's a lot of number of propositions in the theory of moral sentiments that has really helped me to better understand economics at the level of individual uh, social interactions and experimental economics as, as we study it, uh, not in markets, but in two-person, small group interactions. Does Smith see uh, human beings as uh, selfish? Yes, but that does not, uh, is not the thing that drives uh, human decision-making, particularly at the level of, of human interactions. And I puzzle, for, and, and, and you several places within the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith uh, points out that we are self-loving, 
he, uh, in that sense, he's following the, the Stoics, the, the ancient uh, uh, philosophers. Uh, and I realized why his proposition, he needs that. If, if it's common knowledge, you see, that people, that, that more is better and less is worse, then it's very easy for people to understand actions that benefit others and actions that are hurtful to others. It's, it's just becomes common knowledge. And that's the thing that's essential in understanding Adam Smith, that actions that are properly motivated, meaning intended, that are of a beneficent nature to others, he said those alone deserve reward. Why? Because of the gratitude we feel towards someone who takes those actions. Uh, and then on the other hand, improperly motivated actions of a hurtful nature, he says, alone deserve punishment. Why? Because of the resentment we feel from those actions. So, so you see, he's, he's making use of the fact that we all perform, perform more to less. <laughs> but it's not the thing that governs, you see, our, our decision-making because he speaks of, of us learning to humble the arrogance of our self-love and to bring it down to what other people will go along with. And that's kind of, the, I think, that one of the central sentences in the theory of moral sentiments that has to do with Adam Smith's notion of self-command, how, how we uh, d develop a command over our lives and our interactions with others. Jim, what are your, what did you, how would you characterize Smith's view of, the, uh, of, of our nature? I'm not sure I would agree to that. I would agree that, uh, I would, I'm not sure I would put it exactly the way you did, Vernon, that uh, Adam Smith thinks human beings are selfish. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on what we mean by that term. Um, self-interested, yes. Um, although for Smith, I think the term self-interest is a little bit broader than what you might normally think is included in that term, maybe what uh, you might mean by the term selfishness. Because he, he seems to think that my interests, what's in my interests, include the interests of people I love and care about. So if my family is flourishing, if my, my friends are flourishing, if my country is flourishing, these are my interests in the sense that they are interests that I myself have, um, and actions I take to serve those interests are in a sense self-interested, but they are, also interest, they are also serving the interests of other people as well. I mean, but I, I entirely agree, and I think this is a point that's, uh, that's quite important. One of the amazing things about that book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, I mean, if you didn't know what that book was about and you cracked open a book of moral philosophy from the 18th century, um, you might expect the book to be a list of things you should do to be a moral person. So a, a book about moralism um, rather than moral philosophy. But that's not what that book is about. Um, what Smith wanted to do is he wanted to take this Newtonian method and see if we could apply it to human social institutions, the phenomena of human beings. And um, what he noticed, what he thinks he noticed, he seems to have noticed, is that when you actually look empirically at the way human beings develop a, a mature moral sense, it is a process of development. So when they're children, an infant has no sense of moral propriety. They just scream out and demand whatever they want. 
Um, but at some point over the course of their lives, they become, they become moral adults when they have a very sophisticated sense of morality. And this process of change is what intrigued him. How do we go from being the amoral infants that all of us are to being the highly sophisticated moral adults that almost at least all of us become? Um, and for him, this is an empirical question. So the book is really his conclusions on looking at the way human beings develop. Um, and this connection between, so the sociality that you were talking about, Vernon, that's so important to him, plays a crucial role. So he says we all desire, here's one fact about human nature that Smith thinks that we have. We all desire the uh, mutual, what he calls mutual sympathy of sentiments. Um, what that means is we all like to see our own sentiments echoed in other people. So when we become aware that other people agree with us, that they like the joke we told, that they, um, they share our judgments about music or literature or the, what we spend our time on, this gives us a good feeling. We, we like that. Um, it gives us the feedback we need to continue doing some of those so same things. It's like a centripetal force pulling people into a kind of social community. Um, and then on the other hand, when you become aware of the fact that people don't share your sentiments, that's an awkward and unpleasant feeling, isn't it? I mean, uh, one, of, uh, one of Smith's, if you'll allow me, one of Smith's uh, favorite examples is joke telling. Um, so it's a small example, but it's a telling example. So have you ever had the experience, which he describes, um, suppose you're with your friends, you're out uh, making merry somewhere in the evening, you're having your ales and drinking, and you decide you're going to tell a joke. And you tell a joke to your friends, and after you tell your joke, you laugh because it's very funny. You laugh uproariously, it's hysterical. And then you look around and realize nobody else is laughing. Uh, well, that's a very unpleasant experience, isn't it? Um, well, for Smith, this is a small example of a much larger lesson about how it is we learn the rules of morale, etiquette, um, good behavior, and even ultimately moral sentiments. We get this feedback from other people. So we don't develop it unless we have interactions with other people, unless we hear what they think about uh, they have to share their judgments with us, and we share our judgments with them. And this develops as a kind of spontaneous order, to use the term, a commonly shared system of moral judgments. Let me just, in responding to that, that mention that one of the things that I find very powerful is what I call Adam Smith's mental experiment. He says, to make the point about human social, his main point about human sociality, he says, imagine an individual that is brought up without ever having any contact with another member of the human species. He says that person can no more have an idea of what it means to have a social mind or a deformed mind, and he kind of has in mind here a social mind, a deformed mind than to have a deformed face. He's, he says, give that person a, uh, bring that person into society and you give, you, you give him the mirror he needed before. So the whole idea, is, and he, he develops that theme by pointing out that f f as part of our mat maturation, we constantly, our space intersects with others and they always... Uh, mark whether there's a, by approval or disapproval of our actions and similarly we feel uh, a gratitude towards certain actions of others resentment of others so that so that we <clears throat> we learn uh, 
sympathy, fellow feeling. The word empathy doesn't come into the English language for another 150 years. Uh, but Adam Smith, clearly, that is, this is the concept he has in mind, the notion of mutual fellow, fellow feeling. And so his idea of human sociability comes from these basic principles, which, are, which is definitely sociology and social psychology. Right. Yeah, my, my take on it, I, the way I like to think about it is if you watch children in a, playing in a playground or your own children sometimes when they're younger, their favorite word is mine, right? It's, it's all about me. And I think Smith understood that we are somewhat hardwired to think about me, that I am the center of my own universe. But then I have to deal with the fact that bizarrely, you are the center of your universe. What, what went wrong there? I mean, why aren't you revolving around me? And if you interact with people, you have to humble yourself. And for me, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later when we talk about the connection between Smith's works. But to some extent, both of the books are about dealing with the fact that what you want, which is me all the time, doesn't work very well. You, I want your property, <laughs> and I want the floor, I like to hear myself talk, and, but if I want to have friends, which I also want, I've got to humble myself. I have to figure out, I have to make room, as, as you said, Vernon. And similarly, if I want to have more stuff, if I just take yours, I'm going to get in trouble. And so I've got to learn mm -hmm. to trade. And if I'm going to learn to trade, I've got to think about what you care about. As you said, you want more of something, I've got to figure out what that is. And <clears throat> so for me... Smith's view is about the tension that we all face between our desire to put ourselves first and our realization that if we do that, we're not going to be very happy. So we have this impulse to put ourselves first that we have to somehow uh, quiet. So one way Smith says we do that is the impartial spectator. So Jim, why don't you tell us uh, how the impartial spectator works? Ah. Um, well, the impartial spectator is Smith's term for um, something like we, what we might call today our conscience. Um, so here's, here's the general heuristic, which I'll commend to you. You can actually try this. So Smith's idea is if you're deciding what you should do, so tonight after this event, you're, you maybe have a couple of different options. One of them you're not so sure is the right thing to do. How do you decide? How do you, how do you know whether it's the right thing to do? Well, what Smith says is ask yourself what a disinterested observer of your conduct who knows everything about the situation, what would that person think? Would that person approve or not? And Smith seemed to think that this was actually quite a powerful device. And I, as I say, I commend it to you. Try it. If you don't do this already, try it sometime. Literally stop. Take the five seconds it takes when you're thinking about uh, what, you, what, what you should do. Ask yourself, well, what would somebody who observed my conduct, would that person approve or not? But Smith uses this, this notion, this term of uh, impartial observer, um, impartial spectator, as something like the culmination of a long series of exper experiments, in inductive experiments that you've conducted in your life. So the idea is, as you go through this process of maturing, of moral maturing, um, you have lots of experiences where you say things, you do things, and you get feedback from other people. Sometimes it's good feedback, sometimes it's not good feedback. And as you mature, what you develop is a sense of what is appropriate or, um, or proper conduct in certain 
uh, circumstances and what isn't. And as you become an adult, a moral adult, this sense of what's proper or improper, this sense of propriety, um, can be internalized almost as a, what we might call a conscience, but it's like the voice of the, an, an impartial spectator. So when Smith uses that term, some people ask, well, um, is that the voice of God? Um, and, I mean, in Smith's text, it's a, little, uh, it's a little unclear. He doesn't quite say that it's the voice of God, although I think he's open to it being something like the voice of God. Um, but it's an empirically arrived at, inductively arrived at generalization. I mean, in exactly the same way, if to use another example, um, uh, how, how, do we, how do we determine what the appropriate way to dress at a venue like this is? So are there appropriate and inappropriate ways to dress? Well, sure, I suppose they are. Um, not going to try to look. And <laughs> so you're looking at each other. Well, wait a minute now. Not going to say anything untoward. And I, I would just add, for those of you uh, not watching uh, the video or the, uh, the live stream of this, that clearly uh, Jim and I got the same memo. <laughs> about right. about what to wear. Right. Uh, we're in light pants, a blue blazer, and a reddish striped tie. I have a blue shirt on, but you know, could be the memo told Jim to mix it up a little bit. And I especially want to point out that Vernon got a different memo. <laughs> Vernon is wearing a, a bolo tie, which I've seen him wear before, but not this one. And again, for those of you only listening at home, it is an Adam Smith bolo tie, which is incredibly awesome. Uh, sorry, interrupted Jim. Carry on. <laughs> I want to comment on Jim on the impartial spectator. It's interesting that Smith, he first uses the term spectator, then he starts, he introduces impartial spectator, and then he talks, he just says this once, he speaks of the fair and impartial spectator. Now, he's using the word fair in its 18th century meaning, which is a sports metaphor. Fair in the sense of not foul. He's not talking about outcomes. He's talking about rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's very, it's well to keep in mind that really throughout the book, it's the fair impartial spectator. Right, well, so part of what the impartial spectator does in, in talking about a disinterested observer that knows the circumstances is you know the proper rules. So um, what kind of venue is it? Who are, the, if you're going back to that example about joke telling, for example, well, who's the audience? Who are you with? Um, are they older, younger? Is it the same language you're speaking? All of those things come in. Now, when you're deciding whether a joke you're about to tell is appropriate or not, um, you're going to go through all of those heuristics probably very quickly, maybe so quickly you don't realize it, and you'll come to a conclusion about whether a joke you're thinking about telling is appropriate or not. But an impartial spectator is one who's imagined, who actually knows all of those facts about the situation, and thus knows rules that apply in a particular situation. So the fair, being fair means um, applying the proper rules. And coming back to the children issue, where I framed it before, you can argue that learning to listen to the impartial spectator, learning the rules of propriety, is growing up. It's all about figuring it out. And it takes a long time to figure it out. I just want to emphasize that the rules you're talking about, Jim, are, they're very subtle. And people vary a great deal in their ability to figure out what those rules are, when they apply. Uh, and I think it's a fascinating thing to think about the fact that the rules are not written down. Uh, people write books about how to dress and etiquette and how to behave, but the fact is is that these differences of, of how to behave in various situations are so subtle that you really can't write them down. 
And uh, there's an imperfection at the, at the heart of Smith's vision of, of our soci social interactions that I think you have to uh, confront that's different from the Newtonian system. Uh, there's, as you, I think, alluded to earlier, Vernon, there, there's yes. an imprecision about it that is the nature of our lives. And I think Smith embraced that. I think modern social science has moved away from that. Yes, and the impartial spectator is sort of a metaphor for, the, for a statement of what the, the uh, governs our interactions, but there's no suggestion that it's pre precise and determinate. And comment on the difference in our dress. <laughs> I don't remember. My, my mother tells me that uh, I call myself my. I said my do it. Uh -huh. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and, and, and then, of course, that that was an early thing, but the mine, you see, I, was, was, was picked up as a way of identifying myself. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Which, maybe that, I still got some of that problem, right? I think we all do. I think we all do. Uh, do you want to say anything else, Jim, about that? Um, about the, the imprecision. Yeah. Um, I think that's, a, that's actually a strength of Smith's analysis, because um, um, one thing that I think he saw or came to see um, about the difficulty of transferring Newtonian methodology to human beings is that human beings are a bit unpredictable. Um, it's not, you can't always predict exactly what human beings will do. Um, that may have been um, thinking about or a reflection of his, his religious view about human beings having free will. But there is a lack of fit. There's a dynamism about human, about human interaction, about human societies. They go in ways that you can't always predict. Um, and that's part of the process. So we can describe in very general outlines, but we can't always predict exact. It's impossible to predict what kinds of clothing people will be wearing in 20 years. Um, no matter how much you know about the facts today, you can't predict things like you can't predict in a year. Um, and that's one of the exciting things to me anyway about human society um, and human sociology. Uh, the, the science of sociology needs to understand that, that's, that human beings aren't exactly like inanimate objects. So I'm going to push the impartial spectator a little far and, and let you guys react to this. Um, you could argue, and I think there is a, there's a strong suggestion in the text, that Smith's impartial spectator is, is what allows us to create civilization. It's what allows us to create the rules and norms. Uh, my desire for your approval, my desire to avoid your disapproval, keeps me in line. And I learn through going through life, as Jim suggested, what people approve of, what they disapprove of, when one joke's correct, one joke isn't. And I learned the rules of propriety that way. And the result is a harmonious order, mostly, in some situations, that is self-regulating. These rules are not regulations. They're not issued by the government about politeness, though some people would like there to be such rules. In general, our rules of social interaction, they emerge from our choices, our approval and disapproval, and that makes it sound really great. And I think, to some extent, it is really great. And yet, I think Smith understood that that's a little too extreme, the way I've just told it. I think he understood that we also deceive ourselves. We also are prone to push the impartial spectator aside when he's telling us something we don't want to do. And we manage to do something uh, perhaps improper anyway. So I'm curious what, what you think of. Self-deceit. 
was the term he used, yes, that we very easily can uh, uh, deceive ourselves into uh, believing and doing things that are don't fit into this model and that part of the part of our problem is to overcome that self-deceit and uh, but but that it rears its ugly head <laughs> uh, uh, often in our in our lives uh, but that's it's uh, the, the thing that Smith has helped me so much to understand is a lot, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, in your interrogation, Ross, but was to understand data that, that, that we were getting in experimental economics that you could not understand with a standard model. You see, and that, to me, that was, that was powerful. And, uh, and moreover, he was able to do that without making use of utility theory, you know, preference theory, the way modern economists do it, even though underneath it is this, what he calls self-loving orientation, where more is better and, and less is worse. But that was the way we knew whether or not actions were hurtful or, or beneficial to others. So the common knowledge of that, you see, facilitated this, this understanding of, of, of the actions of others and the signals that you see they, that, that they send. Well, uh, the way I think of it, Vernon, and I learned this from you, I like to say that uh, Vernon is my second favorite economist named Smith, and I hope that doesn't hurt his feelings. <laughs> um, out in the world of trade and exchange with strangers, it's what's in it for me, but which is the modern economist's fancy term is utility theory or preference theory. But when I'm interacting with my family and my friends, if that's my motto, I'm going to be in trouble. And it's not about what's in it for me. It's what's, how do I make sure my conduct conforms to the rules of propriety? Now, of course, if I do that well, it's going to benefit me, but it's a different mindset. And I think... It's been helpful to me to help me understand. Uh, well, in, in the extent, ex, external order of market exchange, we have property rights, you see. And it, if I go, uh, go into the market and make a purchase, and it's in a world where the property rights system uh, supports that the seller will deliver what the product that that he advertised, and I will pay in U.S. currency for that. In other words, each side is committed to, uh, to their obligation. Then, you see, we're less dependent upon the, the elements of trust that we, that we need and reputation uh, uh, in, in small groups. And that doesn't mean that those elements don't still come in because there's many markets where there's, a, there's an element of personal exchange, the local hardware store, the local mom and pop store, and this sort of thing where people know each other. But when you go into Walmart and make a purchase, you are connected to someone in the Pearl River Valley in China through a network of exchanges that you're not even aware of. 
And those are supported by a property rights system that makes that work. And what that does, see, see, I think of, see, that's the system which Adam Smith is talking about in The Wealth of Nations. And it explains human economic betterment and the fact that almost all of us are, are better off than our parents and certainly our grandparents. That explains that. His first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, tell, what we can understand from, from that is what contributes to human social betterment. You see, so they both have to do with be human betterment. One at the individual uh, uh, social world of interaction and the other in this uh, extended order of, of ex exchange. And, and human sociality and the demand for it is alive and well. All you have to look is it, at the enormous success of the social media. Well, I look at, at this event, which always fascinates me, because you can listen to Econ Talk, as many of you are doing right now at home, but there's something different about face-to-face. -face. There's something different about in the flesh. Uh, as great as recorded music is, which is mm -hmm. perfect in today's world, near perfect, we still like to go to a live concert which has a different human, it's a different human experience. But Vernon, you brought up a, a good, uh, it's a good segue here, which I'll, I'm going to throw it over to Jim. I want to talk briefly about the Adam Smith problem, which uh, arose in the 19th century when people suggested Germans particularly, in Das Adam Smith's problem, that Adam Smith's two books had some inconsistency because The Wealth of Nations is about self-interest and The Theory of Moral Sentiments is about uh, beneficence and sacrifice and interacting with other people and yet there's nothing in The Wealth of Nations about uh, kindness or virtue or propriety. Uh, maybe these were written by two different people. So. Uh, What's your take on the Adam Smith problem, Jim? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was the German scholars, as you mentioned, who came up with this very grave-sounding name, Das Adam Smith Problem, you know, this <laughs> problem of how do we have... So we have two different books, and one talked about sympathy, and the other one talks about self-interest or self-love. Um, and so you can imagine the kinds of theories that people offer. They say, well, you know, the first one he wrote, he was still a fairly young man, he was idealistic, and maybe he foolishly thought that people actually cared for one another, and... Then he went and traveled around a little bit, including going to France. And of course, you know, everything goes south when you go to France. Um, and he learned that, no, that's not what the world really is. Instead, it's, uh, you know, it's all the dog-eat-dog -dog world. And so then he came up with this theory of capitalism, which is capturing the dog-eat-dog -dog world. So this is a sort of, um, I mean, and uh, for full disclosure, you know, we've had a lot of ink spilled about this Adam Smith problem, including me. I, too, have written about this. Um, in fact, you might argue I got tenure uh, writing about this. <laughs> Very um, self-interested research agenda. Uh, that's right. Um, but I think, I mean, that this entire way of framing the, the, the way the two books goes together, I think, is uh, missing the, the larger point. Um, what Smith was really interested to do was to understand how human social institutions work, and he thought he was on to something. So in the theory of moral sentiments, he was developing this model of an interactive uh, process that, by which human beings can give rise to sets of rules, that enable them to better themselves, as you were saying, but, uh, Vernon, on the individual and social level. But this model, which is something like a marketplace model, where people exchange their judgments and sentiments with one another, sometimes you accept people's judgments and sometimes you say no, 
um, with not too many modifications, this can be transferred to this much larger scale model of, um, of what we now would think of as an economy, a market economy. What goes on when people are engaging in market exchanges? Well, again, you have something like the development of rules of propriety, including in particular rules of property. Um, and a lot of the procedures and processes that govern exchanges in the marketplace are also not intended or de designed by any one person. They emerge from the exchanges themselves. So the sense in which you can see both each of these books as being two iterations. So Smith first trying to understand the social phenomenon of, of human moral judgment making and then trying to understand this other perennial human social phenomenon of bartering and exchanging and trading and trying to improve our lives also uh, materially. Both of those are uh, fundamental and deep aspects of human life, and um, you get him attempting to explain each of them um, separately, uh, but each of them in the two books. So I see those two books not as being in conflict, but indeed being deeply, uh, deeply connected. I think the problem arises because people were reading The Wealth of Nations and, and economists. Um, many had never even heard of the theory of moral sentiments. Mm. And, and, they, and so they... they this is a, what was the problem of the imagination, not of unreality, because if you uh, read the wealth of nations against the backdrop of the theory of moral sentiments, I think it's it, the theory of moral sentiments is there. Some of the famous quotations by Adam Smith, you, you'll notice qualifications in it, and those hark back to the theory of, theory of moral sentiments. For, for example, he, uh, Adam Smith says in The Wealth of Nation that every person should be uh, perfectly free to follow his own interest in his own way so long as he does not violate the laws of justice. That's what the theory of moral sentiments is about. And, and if you haven't read the theory of moral sentiments, you don't see what every word in that sentence means in terms of, of, of where he's coming from. So that I think I quite agree with Jim that the theory of moral sentiments enriches very much the wealth of nations. And he doesn't plagiarize himself by saying, <laughs> by, 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 by quoting himself and referring back to himself always in the... In the That's just what we do now. We all... Yes. Uh, every book I write, I quote the other books that I already read, yeah, yeah. I wrote, yeah, just in case. Yeah, the, the way I think about it, and, I, and I, I'm going to... I do think there's a bit of an Adam Smith problem, but I, I, wanna, I don't think it's the one that the uh, 19th century Germans were worried about, but I think about it as a question of harmony. Why is there so much harmony in our lives? Uh, there's so much harmony in our lives, we don't even think about that as a question to ask because we take it for granted that we can sit around with people at a table and joke and laugh and interact and socialize and have a pleasant conversation. We take it for granted that we can go to that store and interact with that Pearl River Chinese merchant that we don't see, that factory worker mm -hmm. who we don't know about. Those connections between us are really, as Hayek pointed out, a marvel. It's a marvel that we have this incredible extended order of cooperation and specialization that Smith begins The Wealth of Nations about. It's a marvel that even though we're incredibly self-centered, we learn through growing up in the approval and disapproval of others what's courteous and what's uh, proper. And I think that harmony that allows us, I think of it as a dance, uh, even though I'm mixing metaphors here, the harmony is a musical metaphor which Smith uses himself, but to me, it's a dance of how you partner with 
an enormous number of people knowing how fast to dance, how not to bump into other people, how not to override, how not to misstep. And that harmony is what I think he's trying to explain, explain in both books. Having said that, there's sort of an Adam Smith problem that I don't know much is written about, which is his view of wealth. So in one hand, we have the wealth of nations, which is about how nations get wealthy through specialization, through trade. And Smith has very little to say about wealth other than to explain it. And yet, in the theory of moral sentiments, he's eager to tell you that the pursuit of wealth is a fool's game, that it doesn't make you happy, it tarnishes your soul, that ambition is destructive. And yet, when he's writing about those things in the wealth of nations, he's silent. He just says, oh, no, this leads to wealth, and he has no moral statements about those things. How do you explain that? Good luck, Jim. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right, well, first of all, um, so he's not entirely silent about these worries in the wealth of nations. So there are places in the wealth of nations where, he, in fact, he has all sorts of quotes where he says things like, you can't get uh, a few businessmen together over drinks before the, immediately the conversation turns to conspiring against the public. Um, they want to fix prices and get special subsidies, etc. He also says, um, in, at, towards the end, you, you have to read all the way to book five. Um, <laughs> but um, he also... Once, see, once I get to the digression on silver, I put the book yeah, down. That's I'm it, sure I'm yeah. not alone. Uh, you're probably not alone, no. <laughs> Uh, but he worries about the potential effects on workers, on laborers who are doing the same repetitive tasks over and over again. And he fears that, um, that he, he's trying to foresee, and he's writing in the 18th century, he could not have imagined what markets would become um, later on, but he's imagining that the greater proportion of workers will become more and more specialized, which might mean that they do the same sorts of things over and over again, and this might have various deleterious effects, deleterious effects on, their, uh, on their minds. So he does have these sorts of worries. But I think there's another point. To, I mean, there, there are several points to make, but let me make, let me make one. We also have to keep in mind the context in which he was writing The Wealth of Nations. So the full title of that book, which um, is, bears repeating, is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. What Smith wanted to figure out was he was noticing that some places were beginning to get wealthy and other places weren't. And he wanted to know why. Why is it that some places are becoming wealthy, other places aren't? And for him, this was not merely an empirical investigation, not merely just um, something for academic or historical interest, but it was really a moral concern, too, because right in the introduction to the book, so you only had to read a page and a half for this, but right in the introduction of the book, Smith talks about something that would have been quite vivid to people, his readers at the time, and that he himself um, saw, which is that there are people living in the poor highlands of Scotland in his day who are so desperately poor that they often find themselves, that mothers, he says, often find themselves in the horrifying position of trying to decide which of my children will get to eat today because they can't all eat. And sometimes these small, these small clans and families have to turn out their older members because they can no longer, they literally cannot sustain them without others um, being sacrificed. So when I say the context in which he was writing, that's the level of poverty in which many people live. So um, this is, a, this is a, a clear moral imperative and a moral, a moral concern for Smith that we have to figure out what the institutions are that can enable people to arise, to rise out of at least those desperate levels of poverty. Once they get above those desperate levels, once we reach past certain thresholds, well, then this opens up all sorts of worlds of opportunity, frontiers of possibility for human life. 
then we can start talking about, um, well, what is justice? What is a virtuous human life? Am I called to be a musician or a philosopher or something else? None of those questions are possible when people are at that desperate level of poverty. So I think when you're trying to figure out um, what, what is going on behind what's, uh, the, the analysis in the Wealth of Nations, you have to remember that he's looking at people living at what, some very low historical norms of poverty, looking at the misery in which many human pe be beings live, and he says, that's job number one. Let's figure, that, let's figure out first what the institutions are that enable us to ri rise out of those levels, and then that can enable us to turn our attention to the things that, really, that we would like to imagine really do matter to living a, f a truly flourishing, humane life. Jim, I think that tells you why Adam Smith is relevant for the 21st century, because these issues are very evident today. And, you know, a lot of people have a dim view of markets. They, they, they don't, it's not evident, you see, to a lot of people that markets have this capacity for, for raising human betterment, the economic betterment of of people and it's interesting and I think particularly important to notice that Adam Smith was concerned about the conditions of labor and it's interesting that as societies groups become wealthy wealthier then they start to to, uh, to turn to those sort of concerns you see that in China today that uh, conditions of labor are starting to become more of a concern in the areas of China as their, as their wealth grows. And that, that happens everywhere. Uh, and, 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 and the issues are basically moral. They are. I mean, and to, to say one other thing about your, your, your question that initiated that is, um, you know, if, if people make the mistake, which Adam Smith, I think, thought was a mistake, um, of thinking of wealth as being an end in itself, well, that can lead to various kinds of pathologies and difficulties in people's lives. So that's what he's, I mean, many of the passages I think you have in mind um, in the theory of moral sentiments, he's worried about this sort of thing. Wealth is not an end in itself, but what, um, and, and if someone were to ask Adam Smith, well, is the, you know, if all you read was the wealth of nations and you said to Adam Smith, well, is wealth um, the only thing that, is money the only thing that matters? The answer is obviously no. <laughs> That's not the only thing that matters. Be horrified. Uh, on the other hand, what wealth does do is enable human beings to begin turning their attention to things that are higher. They can raise their attention higher than just the most pressing material needs of survival. And that can enable um, the kinds of lives um, that we would be proud of living. Now, if you then make the mistake of thinking that wealth really is the end uh, and the only thing or the ultimate thing that matters, well, then that's gonna, that can lead to all sorts of pathologies. That's a separate kind of mistake, and we would do well to remind ourselves and others and our children um, that wealth is a tool. It's a powerful tool, but it's only a tool. It's certainly not the end for which the tool is designed. Yes, and, and uh, somewhat for someone locked in poverty, it's very hard to get to, get to those higher Right. Levels. Exactly. I, well, I'm going to push back a little bit. So, in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith says, uh, if you're out of debt, you have good health and a clean conscience, it doesn't, there's nothing else that adds to happiness. I'm sure each of the people here could quote that more precisely, but that's what he says. Um, it's a beautiful thought. Sometimes I think it's true. No. But <laughs> most of us have a desire for this. We like these. I'm holding up my iPhone. We'd say there's a lot more to happiness than just being out of debt, good health, and a clean conscience. We want more stuff. We want a bigger house. We want more rather than less, as Vernon, you were saying earlier. 
How do we reconcile Smith's, I think, disdain for wealth more than just, he certainly discourages the pursuit of wealth for its own sake, no doubt about that, but he's a little bit disdainful of, of material success generally in the theory of moral sentiments. And the question I want to ask is, if he were alive today, and if he could see the incredible ways that people sustain themselves, many of us are blessed, not all of us, but many of us are blessed to have jobs that we get deep delight from, from our work, which was much less common in Smith's day. Given that that is the current state of human beings, is what would Smith say about the progress we've made over the last two centuries? Would he just say, ah, it doesn't matter, we'd be just as happy if we lived back in my time? Or would he say there's something qualitatively important about the levels of material success that we have today? Jim, I'll let you go first, then Bernie. I, I think he would I, I almost undoubtedly say that there have been qualitative improvements. Um, on the other hand, you know, Smith did have, and this is something we haven't mentioned in our conversation so far, in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith had um, the, a view of happiness. Um, so if you'd asked, I was going to ask you whether your iPhone finally made you happy, whether well, that was the thing that gave you true happiness in life. Um, and some people might say it's not clear that it gives you happiness in and, life. And uh, just as an aside, Smith has fantastic passages in the theory of moral sentiments about the gadgets of 1759 and how un unsatisfying they ultimately are after you acquire an ear picker. Yes. Yeah. You want to, there's an ear picker, you've always longed for it, and when you get it, you know, well, really, what's the point, he says. So I, he very much understood the disappointment uh, of the latest gadget, and yet the desire we f continue to have to have it. Yeah, um, yeah golden ear pickers and uh, devices for clipping your fingernails and all sorts of well, strange I things. Well, I see, he sees these as preoccupations that really divert yourself, you, yourself from uh, sources of fundamental happiness. And a lot of that comes for the, from our fellow feeling with others and our interaction with others, and he keeps coming back to that. The, by the way, on the, uh, uh, with regard to the person who is out of debt and is comfortable, one of the way, things that he does with that is to say that, that to add to that uh, gives us much less improvement in our satisfaction and happiness than if we if we lose that state, and that's very that's very important in terms because he, it's this notion of the asymmetry between joy and sorrow. He develops that theme, and he uses that to develop the notion that there's an asymmetry between gains and losses which, by the way, is an important part of, of modern psychology. Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize with me, he and Amos Tversky, an important contribution they made was in decision-making uh, to establish this asymmetry between gains and losses, and it's right there in Adam Smith in 1759. That's cool. Jim, I interrupted you about happiness. Did you want to, on your iPhone, what else did you want to say there? One other maybe sort of philosophical point about that is that uh, Smith had a view about what constituted happiness as being something like tranquility. So, Vernon, you mentioned earlier about the Stoics. So he seems to have been, um, to have been moved, impressed by this view that um, having a kind of stoical tranquility was an element of happiness, maybe even mm -hmm. constituted happiness. And if that's the case, then uh, what 
the search for so what ambition can do or the search for more gadgets and more stuff can do is upset that tranquility finding satisfaction in what you already have yes now now so now in his defense he was a philosopher um, and he did spend his time in uh, pursuing somewhat tranquil state he was not an entrepreneur he was not uh, building creating wealth he was not generating businesses uh, but he did seem to have this idea that that's what the true human happiness had some element of tranquility in it and I think you're right, uh, Russ, I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you props here. I think you're right that um, there is a certain tension that exists there between that view of happiness as tranquility and, on the other hand, um, the endorsement of a society in which you have the creative destruction of markets, which might um, sometimes work at cross-purposes with tranquility. So let's turn to this question that, uh, Vernon, you've, you've led us to, which is, you just said, well, Smith was a, a very foresightful thinker, he saw this asymmetry between gains and losses, and it's fun when you read somebody writing in 1759, you realize maybe he should have gotten the Nobel Prize, right? And mm -hmm. they, they somehow they made a mistake, they gave it to Kahneman, but... Um, <laughs> they never give it posthumously. I know they, they don't, but, but just the idea. Uh, all, all Kahneman did was take something that was already in Smith. So my question is the relevance of Smith. Now, personally, uh, I've found reading Smith to be very, very powerful. Um, but you could argue, and I've, many people have, to me, when I've championed Smith, they say, well, that was 1759. Come on, haven't we learned a lot more about psychology and philosophy and economics and then? That's, that's out of date. What are your thoughts on that? Is it well, I think the default position of most students and most scholars today is that whatever was valuable and those ancient contributors that somehow survived and is part of what our current teaching and understanding is, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. There are perspectives in the past, and particularly I think there's perspectives in Adam Smith that are not plain and clear in, in, in the current approaches to some of the same issues. And in economics, I... I I'm in a profession that wants to explain everything in terms of utility maximization. Rationality. And rationality. And so how do they account for this other regarding behavior? Where we take into account our actions on the effect of others. They say, well, that means I have a utility for the outcome that you get as well as I get. So this is an ex post hoc fit, <laughs> having discovered that that's what real people do, and we come along and we invent a utility function that's consistent with that. Uh, that's, that's not good science. For one thing, it doesn't tell you where that utility function comes from. It doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of the dynamics of social interaction that gives you an idea of the rules that we follow which maybe you can, after the fact, characterize them in that way. But it doesn't capture this notion of rule-following behavior that comes out of our experiences from the time we're born. You see, the, the, the human uh, sociality. So I, I see in Adam Smith a, a perspective that is not evident in, in modern economics. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I have... Uh, other experimentalists and behavioral economists that like to 
to come up with utility function that explains people's behavior, but they never predicted the behavior with those, you see. And what I find powerful about Adam Smith is I realize that there's predictions in those propositions that govern uh, people, what people are doing in these two anonymous two-person games that we do in the laboratory. I'm sorry, I didn't get that from uh, modern economics. I got that from Adam Smith. Hmm. Jim, um, is it, have we learned anything about philosophy or uh, anything yeah. since 1759? I mean, can't we just ignore it? Um, well, we can at our peril. I mean, uh, you know, let me ask you, is it no longer the case that human beings seek approval from one another? Um, is it no longer the case that we seek out society with one another? Is it no longer the case that um, we desire mutual sympathy of sentiment? So what Adam Smith did in this remarkable book, and by the way, I, I'll go on record here um, and say that I think that's probably the most important book in moral philosophy, the theory of moral sentiments, written since Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Um, but he's and dead too. He's dead too, and he got a lot of things right too. <laughs> um, so what you get in Smith is a rich and deep understanding of human nature, which um, even if we are all convinced by Darwinian evolution that uh, there is nothing ultimately fixed in human nature, it doesn't change in 250 years or 2,000 years or 200,000 uh, 200, years. So what you got in Smith is one of the keenest observers of human behavior um, and human sociality and trying to work out how it is we come up with the rules of propriety and moral sentiments. Um, so that book is a fantastic book, and I think it offers, I mean, the, the fact that uh, contemporary scholars are rediscovering things that are already in that book is just testament to the fact that um, Smith was really onto something. So let me ask uh, uh, a methodological question. So one of the things I've learned from Smith is how messy human behavior is. And messy is not a good thing for most scientists or social scientists. We don't like messy, right? I want an equation. I want an answer. And a lot of Smith's answers are, it depends, because there's a tension between your self-interest and your desire to be approved by others. And that's enriched the way I look at day-to-day -day life. Uh, it hasn't enriched my view as an economist much, other than to be more skeptical of some of the certainty that my colleagues have about how the world works, because it says that messiness is got uh, is part of the story. So my question is, is economics just about prediction? And I say that because uh, recently uh, Bob Lucas, Nobel laureate, says uh, that Kahneman, for example, or you could argue he was talking about behavioral economics generally, oh, that's nice for thinking about maybe how two people interact. Vernon, take your example, but we don't need it and it's not even helpful in predicting how, say, a tax cut will affect behavior or a change in interest rates. That macroeconomics doesn't need these messier views of the human enterprise. Um, what are your thoughts, Vernon? I think, though, so if you take that attitude, then you miss some understanding of where all of this came from. You see, the world didn't start just yesterday when Bob Lucas started to teach. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that's an important part of understanding the human condition and who we are as, as uh, humans and what we might become. So it's, uh, I see it as... It, prediction is important uh, in the sense that it, it's, it tests your understanding of what's going on. 
it's interesting that Adam Smith, also David Hume, used the word experiment. What did he mean by that? He means a case. In other One words, data point. <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's a case. It's an it's a it's a situation that we have empirical evidence on. And the point is, within both Hume and Smith, is that we that we use this to 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 test, to challenge our understanding of the world, and 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 that cases are important, and uh, and context is important. You see, Jim started out; he's telling the story about the joke. <laughs> you see, uh, contexts are very very important because. The rules we follow are situation dependent, and, and they, they depend upon the situations. And that makes it look complex and messy, messy yeah. you see. But I think Adam Smith provides a way to, to, to understand that more clearly and to, and to see why context is important. Uh, Jim? Um, well, I, I think we'd have to say that if the sole value of economics were in its predictive power, um, they wouldn't be doing very well, would they? Um, um, so I think I, that's not to say that quantitative analysis is not important. It is. But um, for me, the great lesson from Adam Smith that I took from Adam Smith, it really fundamentally changed the course of my career and my thinking about things in many ways. What's important, um, what I feel like I've learned from Smith, is that um, there, if, if you're going to investigate the kinds of institutions that can actually enable a, a, human, a flourishing human life and flourishing human lives, um, you have to marry two different things. So Smith called himself, he, was, he, he uh, thought of what he was studying as political economy. Um, and what that means is you have to have sound moral philosophy on the one hand, but it has to be married to the, um, what we think we know about the actual um, condition of uh, human beings on the other hand. So what you need is the moral philosophy connected with economic reasoning. And if you have one or the other without the other one, um, then you're headed for trouble. So if you have moral philosophy that's unconnected to the human condition, to the scarcity of resources, or the actual aspects of uh, human social life, then you're engaging in idle speculation. But on the other hand, if you have quantitative analysis without having some sense of what this is all ultimately serving, um, then it's not clear what you're doing either. What, Smith, uh, what I feel like I've learned from Smith is that, um, you're, that someone who's studying human social institutions is called on to marry those two and to look for the kinds of institutions that can actually serve the moral values that we think are the ones worth serving. Um, you know, and this is a way to go back to the Adam Smith problem. The, the solving of the Adam Smith problem is the connection of those two things. So moral philosophy and, um, and economics um, in Smith's day, this is also our problem today. We today to also want to know how moral values can be expressed or uh, captured in the kinds of economic institutions that give us um, the new iPhones and the other things that we enjoy. Um, what Smith, I think, what his model and his example um, uh, showed was that someone who's serious about improving human lives um, has to take both of those things seriously, and you cannot ignore either one of them. And that, I think, and I'll speak for myself, is an inspiring message for someone who wants to investigate how we can actually enable human beings to live flourishing, humane, and just lives. You know, Adam Smith opposed slavery colonialism, empire, uh, taxation without representation, when these things were very unpopular in, uh, in Britain. And you've got to ask, how was he able to do that? What was his source of inspiration? How did he come up with 
with these ideas that, that later became so much a part of what Western civilization was all about. And I think that's reason enough to not only study the wealth of nations, but also the theory of moral sentiments. My guests today have been Jim Otteson and Vernon Smith. Thank you, gentlemen, for being part of EconTalk. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.